The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. It's a new way to spread the word about the search for Raymond Green. Raymond was a newborn baby when he was abducted in 1978 from his Atlanta home. We strongly believe that Raymond could be out there and not know his real identity. To help find Raymond, a short video about his story is now playing on monitors at gas pumps across the country. Well, thousands of children disappear in America every year, and with the assistance of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, law enforcement recovers a great number of these kids. But happening right now, a renewed push to find a Georgia man who was abducted years ago just after his birth. It is possible. Just a few months ago, there was a case where a baby was abducted in Fort Worth, Texas. 51 years ago, a few months ago, that baby was reunited with her family. It was a DNA match. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to the Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of both the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in both California and beyond their history. This podcast also examines some of the most unique cases, some solved and some unsolved. Today, we're going to talk about a heartbreaking unsolved case that happened just about 45 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. We're also going to talk about an amazing organization called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which it is oftentimes called NICMIC. My guests today are Donna Green and Carol Schweitzer, and Carol is from NICMIC. Welcome to both of you. Thank you both for being here today. Hi, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, welcome. Let me start off, first of all, with Carol Schweitzer from NICMIC. And just first of all, Carol, just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and then maybe explain to the listeners, what does NICMIC do? So I've been with the National Center for about 17 years now. And I came to NICMIC actually as an intern uh, back in 2005 timeframe. And I never left. The passion and the professionalism of everybody that I encountered during my introduction time at the organization just left an impression on me that this was where I was supposed to spend my time and develop my skills so that I could make an impact in this community. And it's been an awesome journey I've seen our organization grow from just developing our programs and the resources that we can offer over the years and just see how the resources truly help bring kids home 
and can come alongside searching family members to make them feel heard and supported and involved in these really difficult cases. Um, so it's been a journey for me. I've always been within the Missing Children's Division and specifically have been focused on long-term casework, whether it's long-term missing children or unidentified deceased children for the past uh, 13 of those years. So it, for those that don't know, NICMIC is actually a nonprofit. We're located, our headquarters is in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, just over the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. And But we also have branch offices. We have regional offices um, up in Rochester, New York, in Texas, as well as Florida. So we do have staff scattered, and we're just about 450 employees now within the organization across all of our offices. So what, um, I, I know NICMIC is a pretty large organization. And, and when I was looking at the website, you have a lot of different divisions. So maybe kind of explain to the listeners, because you work on, you work on obviously missing children and you mentioned long-term. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So we have, you know, the organization has uh, focus programs from prevention side, which is, you know, engaging with the community, engaging with uh, teachers and law enforcement and family members, educating them and giving them materials of how to prevent uh, child victimization, whether that's through uh, teaching students and kids how to use the internet safely, how to engage them with safety matters of just coming to and from for preventing abductions, all the way to um, we have a exploited child division that works very closely with law enforcement and identifying and um, monitoring the, the child sexual exploitation images um, to identify who those victims and those images are, getting them out to law enforcement to, for appropriate follow-up. Um, all the way to we have uh, a training division that really focuses on uh, training law enforcement, child welfare services, um, you know, to educate them on these resources and how to help prevent and just support the kids that are involved in these situations during a missing event or an exploitation event. Um, but we have we have at least 15 pro core programs that um, we are mandated to work by Congress. And then those programs are constantly growing through our private funds, you know, to be able to do more. Within the Missing Children's Vision, Anne-Marie, you had asked like what long-term is. Right. So we have cases where law enforcement can call us, you know, during that critical event when that child immediately goes missing, they could call our 24-hour call center and say, Nick, Mick, we need your help. And our resources are available to law enforcement immediately. But we will continuously provide those resources until that child returns home. So whether that child returns home within a matter of hours or a matter of years or decades, we're always going to keep that case open until we can find that resolution of where that child is. And so as cases continue to advance and they continue to go longer term in the years, it takes different resources and uh, skill set to look at those cases, 
to understand how to come alongside law enforcement and support them. They need a different pair of eyes, a different methodology to look at them, to take them apart, to walk alongside law enforcement and provide them those right resources to help advance those cases. So we have teams that have just dedicated and learned um, on how to come alongside law enforcement as cases age and the kids continue to remain missing. So there's no hardcore number that says after one year or 10 years, it automatically becomes like a long-term case. It's not that. It's just based on the case circumstances and how that law enforcement agency is engaging with the National Center. Okay. So you're in the forensic services unit, right? Yes, I am. So what is that? I mean, maybe just explain a little bit. What does that mean? And then I'm going to because you know me, I, I love DNA, and I believe it's the, the key to finding the truth. Um, what role does DNA play in your efforts to find children and return them back home? So we we have you know determined at NCMEC and just seen the value of the impact that biometrics in general and forensics that field plays on both the missing and the unidentified child casework. And so for the past 10 years, NCMEC has made a concerted effort to facilitate the collection of biometrics on all of our cases. And when for biometrics at NCMEC, we're talking about DNA, dentals, and fingerprints. These can help bring kids home. There are so many times that a child goes missing, and during that missing event, they come in contact with law enforcement. But when they're engaging with that other agency, they're providing a fake name, a fake date of birth. So that agency has no idea that they're a reported child from another jurisdiction. But if we have fingerprints on file, there's a really good chance that that connection will be made. So as soon as we get a case, we're trying to start asking those questions of trying to facilitate if we can get these biometrics up into national databases so that they can be proactively working and searching to bring that child home. So as the case goes, you know, as the child continues to be missing, we're pushing for that information even more. And we're looking for what family members are willing and around that we can have that conversation with to ask them about providing a DNA sample for the national DNA database, CODIS, the one that law enforcement manages. This is so critical because we're trying to do something proactive to find these kids. And if that's one thing that a family member can do to engage in their search for their missing relative, let's do it. Let's try to see where this goes. And these are hard conversations with family right. members. Doesn't matter if your child's been missing for a few minutes or decades, right? These are difficult conversations. And we have a, just a fantastic team, uh, a family advocacy division team, and that. that just really comes alongside family members of searching family members that can have these difficult conversations to explain and inform what the process is, why we're asking what, what answers could be discovered by doing these steps. 
And it's just providing that support and giving them time to understand and ask questions so that they're informed when they say, yes, they know what they're signing up for. Once we get whatever biometrics we can into the law enforcement databases, um, we are then looking at the case on a forensic side to say, what else can we do? The world of forensics is constantly changing. So reevaluating a case every two years definitely is relative in this day and age because technology is rapidly evolving and expanding its capability that we want to constantly be looking at these cases to see what else can we do. And one of those great new tools is forensic genealogy. And the application of it to not just, you know, for our world at NCMEC, it's both not just on the unidentified to to identify who these children are, but it's also like, wow, we could actually find some missing children alive. Right. Like this is mind blowing, right? Like we're like, how awesome is this? Let's do it. (laughs) You know? Um, And so it has been such to be honest, a privilege to be engaged in this industry during this time that we've got to see genealogy apply to cases because we're seeing cases resolved that may never have been resolved if this technology wasn't available. And it's such a great um, place to be in, to be involved in that process of learning how to do this the right way alongside law enforcement, alongside these searching family members um, to help give answers, to help see where this goes. Um, So part of the forensic services unit is we are um, engaging with external lab partners to develop this tool set that we can offer law enforcement um, to apply to these cases. And so NICMIC is not a lab. We don't receive any of this stuff back here. We're just the handshake. Like we're coordinating between law enforcement and the lab that has the technology, making those connections and saying like, let's get this going. But these labs are donating. They're providing in-kind services Mm -hmm. to cases that NICMIC is involved in so that law enforcement or searching family members don't have to worry about the funding or where the money's coming from. The last thing we want is for law enforcement or family to say no because of money, right? We want the resources applied and we don't want money to be the issue. And so we have just these awesome lab partners that are coming alongside us to say, hey, we're going to support NICMA cases. And so these are can be private labs, public labs, even a lot of federal lab partners provide these types of forensic resources that we can apply. So one of the cases before we talked to Donna, but one of the things I was when I was watching a video on NICMIC about long term missing cases and the use of genealogy was a case that was recently solved named Melissa Highsmith. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, Melissa. Melissa was was a fastic story. Well, I think it's important, and, and let's be honest, some of the cases out of NICMIC are very tragic, um, but there are uh, cases that demonstrate the hope um, that you can, in fact, bring a long-term missing child home. And so, mm-hmm. 
before I talk to Donna, just maybe just tell us about that case and kind of the value of, of, of the passion behind the work and also just the use of genealogy to help uh, find children. So Melissa was 21 months old when she was abducted from Fort Worth, Texas. And so I think this was in 1971. She was 21 months old, abducted from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, She was left in the care of a babysitter. And that was the last her family saw of her and last they saw of that babysitter. There was no indication that Melissa was abducted to be harmed. There was all the hope left in this case that Melissa was abducted to be raised by somebody else, unknowing that she has this wonderful family still searching for her all of these years. And when we have these cases, we're always looking for those resources of how do we find them alive all of these years later when they might, these kids were abducted when they might not have memories of their original biological family. Right. And so genealogy has played a huge role. So in Melissa's case, Nick Mick was able to collaborate and communicate with her family that's still alive, her parents, her siblings, um, and talk to them about what forensic genetic genealogy is and what these national uh, genealogy databases like Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch are all about. And we were able to inform them and help facilitate getting some Family Tree DNA kits over to the relatives that were willing to provide a voluntary sample for upload into those databases. Um, and so NCMEC facilitated those um, uploads with law enforcement's uh, assistance and approval, like nothing that Nick Mc does is without law enforcement's approval. Because right. um, these aren't our investigations. We have to make sure that we're working as a team collaboratively with all entities involved. Right. Um, but Melissa's family took it a step further and they tested in some of the other databases that are available like Ancestry and 23andMe on their own because they wanted to just increase all the chances possible of finding Melissa. And it worked. worked. So one day they saw that match come through and, you know, they were able to make that connection and reach out. And after lots of phone calls and back and forth, after 51 years, they were able to be reunited. Yeah, it's an amazing story. You know, it's, it's powerful, right? Like this gives so much hope. You know, 51 years, 51 yeah. years. Yeah. So that's kind of what, you know, I met Donna, I don't know, a month or so ago in Washington, D.C., where she told her story about her and her son. And I'm hopeful that her sharing her story and spreading the word that that same resolution comes forward. So Donna Green, I want to just say thank you for being here. Um, And maybe you can just tell us about um, what happened to you and your child and how you got involved with NCMEC. 
Well, I was 16 and pregnant. Um, when it was time for me to have Raymond, I went to the hospital in, at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. And after I had Raymond, I went to the windows, you know, because back then they had the baby all arrayed out. You, They had the baby in a nursery and you could just go in and see all the babies and stuff. And I went up to see Raymond and as I was standing there, a young lady walked up. Um, we acknowledged each other by a nod and then she went to talking to me, which one is your baby? I showed her, I pointed to Raymond. She pointed to a little girl and said that that was her sister's baby. Her sister had just had a baby, and that was her niece. We talked for a little while, small talk, and then when I got ready to go back to the room, she asked if she go to the room with me uh, because she didn't want to bother her sister, and I said yes. We got back to the room. <clears throat> we started talking and looking at Lucy. I love Lucy and laughing and stuff. Okay. Yeah, and... um. You know, just small talk. Later on, she came back again, and we just kind of small talk. But she seemed to be pretty cool, you know. So I thought she was a pretty cool young lady. She's like she's my maybe three three years older than me or something like that. Nineteen, maybe twenty. And then the next day, she came back in, and and we talked and and laughed, and she asked me questions and stuff. And then uh, when we got ready to go home which was on the third. I had Raymond on the first. Yesterday was his birthday. And on the third, we got ready to go home. And she asked, could she get a ride home? Because she had missed her, uh, missed her ride, she said. The people that was taking me home said yes. So they dropped me off first. And then they dropped her off. Well, on the 6th of November, she came back to the house, um, knocked on the door. And I was surprised when I opened the door and saw her. You know how you just get a feeling, but you don't know what the feeling is? I got right. a feeling, but I didn't know what it was. I never had it before. So I just asked her what she was doing here because it was strange for her to be there. She said she just came to see what, um, how we was doing, how Raymond and I was doing. I'm thinking that she must really want to be my friend to come here. Because I, I said, how did you get there? She said on the bus. I'm thinking you must really, she must really want to be my friend to come all the way over here on the bus to see me. You know, I let her in and we talked a while and everything and laughed and talked. And then um, I needed to go freshen up. And when I got ready to go freshen up, you know, I said, when well, I'm getting ready to go freshen up, I was hoping that she would leave. But she was like, no, I'll just wait till you um, finish. I wanted her to leave, but I didn't know how to say that to her, you know. So right. I just told my brother. My brother was sitting in the chair kind of nodding a little bit. And I was like, hey, watch the baby. I'm going to go upstairs and take a quick shower, you know, to freshen up. And he was like, okay. Well, I just felt something going up them steps. But I just didn't know what it was. So when... um I got in the shower. I don't even think I was in the shower maybe 10, 15 minutes maybe. And I just had that urgency to get out, just get out the shower. I didn't even know what that was about, but I got out. And when I came downstairs, because when you come down one set of steps, you can see where the baby was lying before you go down the other step. And I didn't see the baby there. And I think I jumped down two or three steps for like, you know, just trying to get to my brother. And I just, because I went to the door and then my brother was asleep. And then I shook him and woke him up and asked him where the baby. And he was like, what do you mean with the baby? I'm like, where's the baby? I don't see the baby. And she was like, well, the baby started crying and your friend just picked him up. Well, she walked out the door with him. And that was the last time I saw Raymond. Wow. That's, um, 
that's a lot to unpack. Um, let me let me ask a, a, a couple questions because I think it's important that the listeners understand. So, first of all, you said yesterday was his birthday. So, how yeah. old and how long has he been missing? Yesterday he used to, he was he turned forty five. So he's been missing for forty. He'll be missing forty five years on the six. He turned forty five yesterday. Did you ever have a photograph of Raymond? Never. Nah, I didn't have it, bit any baby pictures of Emmy or anything like that. So this woman that befriended you, um, maybe you can kind of just describe, first of all, did she tell you her name? She said her name was Lisa. Okay. She said her name was Lisa. And I said Lisa Morris because the baby that she pointed to that was in the daycare last name was Morris. That's what that okay. was on the thing. So that's how I came up with Lisa Morris. Whether that was her, well, I'm pretty sure that wasn't her name. I don't know how much investigating the police did into that, but I'm pretty sure that probably wasn't her name. Do you have any idea if she, I mean, you don't know if she's even telling you the truth that that baby was a relative, right? Correct. Okay. Was she, yeah. maybe describe her white, black, Hispanic? No, she was black, um, kind of pecan color black and um, real nice looking, had a beautiful smile. She was just real friendly, you know, okay. um, mid height, maybe about five, seven, maybe um, slender. I didn't see her hair cause she wore a scarf. I'm Chad Peace. I'm very proud to be the legal strategist for the Independent Voter Project. For over 12 years, I've been proud that you know, as an organization, while everyone else is focused on the two-sided, hyperbolized debate, Independent Voter Projects put their head down and do things like file initiatives and lawsuits that create structural change that actually elevates the voting rights for voters who are sick and tired of the two-party debate. So, um, when you come down the stairs and, and Raymond's missing, I mean, maybe walk us through, like, what did you do when you realized that she had taken your child? Well, when I got downstairs and I realized Raymond was missing and woke my brother up, I ran out the door. I asked somebody going down the street, did they see anybody with a baby? I ran back in the house. Um, I think I just kind of stood there a few minutes trying to figure out, is this really real? Like, right. what do I do now? Is, did she take my baby or did she just, is she coming right back or what's going on? You know, cause I never heard anybody stealing the baby or taking a baby. So it, it wasn't computing in my mind that this lady just took my baby. Maybe she, you know, went somewhere and was coming right back, but I went on to call the police anyway. And, and, and even with that, I'm thinking to myself, I know she's going to come back. You know, nobody takes nobody's baby. So, yeah, I, I was just, I was totally confused as to what Did was you, going on. And you had no recognition of this woman at all. Nobody that you know from the neighborhood or school or anything like that. No. No. Okay. So tell us kind of what happened. I mean, with the police and I mean, obviously he's been gone for 45 years. What's happened? What's happened over the years with, did they investigate? His abduction? They did investigate. Um, 
the police came out to my house that day. I think it was maybe one car came out, took my information, talked to me a little bit, rode around, and then that was it. Nothing else that I can remember. Um, I don't remember them coming back out or anything like that. Um, they just kind of said if they hear anything, they'll let us know. I don't know what kind of investigation they did. I wish I did, but I right. don't know because they lost the file on it. So I, when I went back down just to get the file to see what, what exactly did they do, um, they didn't have the file. So I don't know what kind of, you know, what they did do, but that's what they told me that if they hear, hear anything, they'll let me know. I kept calling down and every time I called down, that's what they said. So I didn't, um, I don't know. So you said at some point they told you they lost the file. Like, I mean, how that long? 20 something years later, I went back down there because at that point I knew they wasn't going to do anything. So I went down there just to get the file so I could see what they did do because for a while I didn't know what to do. But then right. they pulled up a file from 1948 right away, but they didn't have his file. And so they didn't believe me. They didn't believe that I had a child that was missing because they didn't have a file on him anywhere. And um, I reached out to Nitmick and they didn't have, so I assumed, I automatically assumed that they would be with, he would be with Nitmick, but he wasn't. They told me they needed a, a, um, a number, a case number on him. So they told me what to do to go back, go down there and see, can I get that? So when I went back down there, they wouldn't even give me that because they didn't have anything on him. Um, oh my goodness. So I had to go to the library and pull up something from 1978 to say, you know, this child was missing and take that back down to the police police department just for them to give me, um, you know, number. something on them. Yeah, a report on them. So what she said to me was, you know, we can just take down what you say and then get, put a number on that and that'll be. And that's what she did. It was like one page, you know, and that was it. But I was thankful for that. Um, it really hurted me that they didn't have, cause he's an infant. Like how do you use, right. lose an infant? Yeah. Yeah. Um, infant file. Yeah. So tell me what it was like in the, in the first couple of years. I mean, obviously this has been a mission for you for 45 years, but you know, you're 16 years old and your child's been taken. I mean, what, you know, how did you feel other than, I mean, I, I, I have, a, I'm a mom and, and it, just yeah. I lose my breath over the thought of someone taking my child. Yeah. Um, scared. Uh, I didn't have anybody to lean on, no adults or, you know, friends. So people, because people start saying I, I gave Raymond away. Oh my. Um, they say I gave him away. And that, you know, I would walk down the street, there go that girl that gave her baby away. I don't believe that. She did something to that baby and stuff like that. So it was kind of difficult for me to um, really function at the level that I was before because not only had my child got missing and I didn't have anybody that I, that could help me how was I supposed to act now that I had a child that's missing? Because right. when I laughed, they said, look at her over there laughing. She don't care about that child. She did something to her son. And then if I cried, they said that I was um, 
I was about to lose my mind or something like that. And then I had somebody calling my house, letting the baby cry, hanging up the phone. And, you know, oh and it just, I, I just felt like nobody really cared that I, that I, that my son was missing. Wow. That must've been really hard. I mean, I'd like to believe that we've come a long way on providing yeah. support. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to enough victims over the years that back in the day, perhaps they didn't get the support they needed. But at some point, Donna, when you said it was, you had to go basically find the information yourself to get mm -hmm. the police report. When did you first reach out to Nick Mick? And how did you, how did you even think about that? I, I found something, one of the little slips that came through, you know, used to come through the mail. I, somebody was missing on the slip, and then I thought maybe they had Raymond. I'd never seen him on there, so I called them, and they had no idea um, what I was talking about. You know, they said they didn't have him or whatever. And then I told, I don't know who I talked to. I don't, but I told somebody the story, and um, it was amazing because even telling them the story, it was like somebody actually listened to me. Yeah. And I felt like they cared. I didn't even want to hang up the phone because somebody really cared about, you know, Raymond being missing. It was just amazing to me. So um, they told me what to do. And I went down and the police wouldn't even give me a, they would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give me a report. They would, they would not give me the report. And so I remember going back down there again and it was like, I'm telling this lady what's going on what happened. And then it was like three or four detectives or whatever, just standing over on the other side, looking out the door at me, like, here come this crazy lady down here talking about yeah. somebody from, you know, so many years ago. And I remember walking out with tears in my eyes, like, what do I do now? They don't have a, uh, they don't, they don't have a file on him. What, what am I supposed to do? And then I called Nick Mitt back and she said, do not let them do that. Go back down there. So I went to the library and I and, and I pulled got that pulled up. I just I asked the lady at the library, you know, can she go back that far and see was anything in the newspaper? And she did. And she gave me that. And I took that back down there. And then they said, Okay, so okay, so we can give you a report, but that's all we we're gonna be able to do. And I and I was good with that. So Nick Mick really bought Raymond to life. Um mm -hmm. And it and it and it gave me a, a gave me a reason to um, to stand and do what I do because Did I found you know I found strength having Nick Mick on my side. I found I found my strength. Right. Did you um Did you have a birth certificate for Raymond? I did. Okay, so even having that, it still wasn't enough for the police report to be generated, you had to go find a newspaper article showing it? I had to go find, I had to prove that he was missing. Okay. The news, the, 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 um, first was going to prove that. Yeah. The newspaper proved that he was missing. So that's what I took down there. Was, um, and, and you can tell me this is none of my business, so please do, but did you, was the biological father involved at all? Yeah. Okay. Did he know that Raymond was missing? Mm-hmm. Okay. We were still okay. together, but I think he was a little bit more so on that side of, um, he did tell me that he don't think, 
I did anything, but he thought I was too trusting. The reason why Raymond, the reason why I was son isn't there is because he thought I trust people too much. I was too trusting. I was too nice. Well, you might be nice. You might be trusting, but, it, but this woman took your baby. That's, that's the bottom line. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So Carol, let me ask you this. When did, um, if you remember, when did Nick Mick, like what year did Nick Mick get involved in Donna's case, Raymond's case? Uh, we started to, uh, get involved in around 2007. Oh, wow. And so during 2007 is when we started to, you know, talk to Donna, have conversations, provide her that support, um, and just give her that guidance on how to get law enforcement re-engaged in Raymond's case. And throughout all these years, we've actively been engaged with the Atlanta police department, providing them resources. You know, we've had some of our team Adam consultants on multiple occasions, go to Atlanta, um, meet with detectives, talk about Raymond's case, see what other um, strategies and resources can be applied. Uh, We did help Donna many years ago, you know, look for, get her DNA into the national DNA database CODIS. And then even more recently, her efforts with getting uh, her DNA uploaded into the, the genealogy databases and search for Raymond. And, you know, our, with all the leads that have come in over the years, we have a whole team of analysts that dive into those leads and see, you know, if there's validity behind them or not before they even go to law enforcement. And uh, we've been able to work with Donna. She's provided some great family reference photographs So even though we didn't have, you know, a newborn photo of Raymond, our forensic artists have been able to use all those family reference photographs and create age progressions Mm -hmm. of what Raymond may have looked like as he's aged over the years. Is that based upon, since you don't have a photograph of him, how did you use the DNA to do an age progression or how did you, how did you develop that? So our forensic artists use family reference photographs of the biological family members. So they will use photographs of biological mom, dad, siblings um, at the age of when they're trying to age progress that child too. So if we were age progressing Raymond to 10 years old, we would have gone back and had conversations with Donna to be like, can you send us photographs of yourself when you were around 10? It doesn't have okay. to be the exact age, right. but just so that the artists can use those in developing what the features of Raymond may have looked like as he was aging up. And, you know, they're not supposed to be this exact, you know, portrait Right. They're supposed to right. just enhance the features of what we think that the child may look like to spark recognition in somebody that may have interacted with him over all of these years. And so we're able to give the public an, an image of, of Raymond, of what he could look like today in hopes that somebody can draw that connection. So when you um, you mentioned that that. Don, I assume it's Donna's DNA is in these genealogy sites, right? Or other family members? Yeah, Donna Donna has tested herself. Okay. What about, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Donna, do you have a DNA sample from Raymond? Was there any kind of, you know, like in California starting in, I don't know, the early 80s, they did these uh, blood cards for babies. 
I don't know if they have. Do they have that? No. Not in Georgia. Mm. No, unfortunately. That's too bad. Um, so Donna, let me go back to you. So you start working with Nick Mick. You know, my guess, just from meeting you, is this is something you think about all the time. Every day you wake up and when you go back to bed, you think about him. But I, I noticed that you started your own nonprofit, right? Right. So tell me what, tell us what that's about and what the goal of it is. Um, I started a nonprofit, Raymond Green International Outreach. It's a 501c3. Um, and what we focus on is cold cases. Uh, okay. We focus on bringing awareness back to them because like Raymond, he was forgotten. And I know it's a lot of family members, a lot of parents out there, you know, loved ones feel like don't nobody care, you know. So what we do is we'll find those parents, those loved ones. And, you know, like we went to Augusta, the, the Millbrook twins, we went up there, we spotlighted that case. You know, we had a lot of people come out, giving out flyers, talking to people, different things like that. Our goal is always to give out at least 150 to 200 flyers, put them in different people's hands in the area. You know, so if, if, if the car was last seen here, the phone last pinged there or whatever, we go mm -hmm. out that way. And we also do walks for uh, for the missing. We do giveaways in the park and talk to the kids and stuff when they come out, you know, food giveaway and all that. Talk to the kids when they come out about being saved. We educate the community, have different uh, events during the year to educate the community. So when you hear stories, like Carol talked about Melissa Highsmith being found, when you hear stories about, you know, long missing, long-term missing children being reunited, how does that, how does that impact you? Well, I, well, I know for a fact that, I mean, it's, 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 um, it gives me hope, you know, I know Raymond is out there somewhere and I know that I feel like only God knows I will win. So God knows when it's time for him to come home. And until then, you know, when I hear these other stories, cause when I pray, I pray that the Lord ease somebody's mind today, bring somebody, it don't have to be Raymond, but bring somebody's child home. Cause the way I see it, that Raymond is in a line. And every time a child come home, he's moving on up. He's going to get his time when it's time, you know, and only God knows I will yeah. win. But every time I hear a case like that, it's just, it just lets me know, don't give up. It gives me hope. Right. How do you feel about, you know, this whole new world of genealogy? Do you think that gives you even more hope to, to bring him home? Amazing. Yes. Yes. Because I know if we can't physically find him, a DNA, the genealogy, that, that can, because if he don't do it, maybe his children will do it or, or something, right. you know. So you just never know. But that's a whole nother world and a whole nother possibility that if we didn't have, it would be um, our, our, the hope would be less than it is now. The more I hear about genealogy and DNA, the more excited I get about the possibility yeah. Because I know there's so many different ways that he could come home, opposed to that one way of somebody finding him. It's so many different ways that he can come home now. So I have hope. You should have hope. I mean, I think there's a lot still that you can think about. And you know, do you in you know as a mother, in your intuition, do you think he's still in the Atlanta area, or do you have no idea? You know, sometimes I get a feeling, and I feel like he's close. I do. And then sometimes I get a feeling that I just need to pray for him because he's going through. And and sometimes I just don't know, you know, sometimes I, I just I don't know. But even those times I still have hope because if he's here, 
you know, he's found, but if he's a, if he's a million miles away with the DNA and genealogy and all that, he still can be found. So I'm still hopeful. Yeah. I say when, before the Golden State Killer was caught that, you know, we were looking for a needle in a haystack, but the needle's out there and you just got to keep looking for it. And I feel like the genealogy or the DNA that you guys are working so hard on that that's going to lead you hopefully to the needle, right? Yeah. I believe it will. I, 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 I believe it will. I'm just waiting. Like I say, only God knows I'll win. So it's going to happen. And until then, I'm going to keep doing what I do. You know, one of the things when you, I, when I met you a month or so ago, um, you were talking to a room full of cops and about your, your story. And one of the things that really impacted me is you said, you know, we're all different. We all have one thing in common. We're all part of the human race, right? So I, I think, you know, I think that it's such an important story that I think anybody that hears it, Donna, wants to help. Um, and Carol, let me go back to you. I mean, Nick Mick is, you know, it's just an amazing organization, but you guys have done some extraordinary work on Donna's case, even recently with some of these public service campaigns, right? Um, and, and maybe you can tell the listeners kind of so that they can watch when they go fill up their gas tanks, you know? Yeah. So one of the amazing uh, opportunities that we have is we have a relationship with gas station TV and our communications team was able to get Raymond's latest age progression image uh, featured on gas station TVs across the entire United States in every single state. And that was for an extended period of time. So anybody filling up their, you know, their gas tanks could see that these images and, you know, get more information on Raymond's story. And so we're constantly trying to find ways to get to reach a broad audience, whether it's through gas station TV or it's through social media, you know, to get eyes on not just his images, but his story. Right. Because it's that's the one thing that we want people to understand is, you know, a lot of people always say like, oh, these are so sad stories. We want you to talk about them, talk about them with your friends, talk about them at work. Like they don't have to be sad ending stories. Like talking about Raymond gives people hope. Right. Mm -hmm. We can we're charging the public out there. Find Raymond. Right. Help us find Raymond. They can do something by talking about his story, sharing his image on social media, submitting their DNA to a genealogy site. Like there are things that every single person can do to help find Raymond. Right. And, you know, so we just want people to, to talk, to share, you know, to keep their eyes open and don't hesitate. If you think that you have any information, however irrelevant or unsure that they could be, we want them to pick up the phone and call NCMEC or call Atlanta Police Department. We want to know what they think they know, right? Because right. any small little thread, like you said, that needle, right. it's out there and it's only going to take one phone call. Absolutely. Donna, I mean, if you you know, had a wish for today in terms of what people take away from this podcast, just listening. Um, what, what do you want it to be? Well, go get a DNA test. Go, go, go do your DNA because, um, 
You may be Raymond. You may be someone I'm looking for. And if, if not that, you may be some, it's not only that, you can find your family members, you can find loved ones, you can help solve cases. There's so many things that your DNA can do. Uh, go get a DNA test. And when you go by Walmart and see different pictures on Facebook and all those different things, share them. Post them, share them, you know, take time out to look at the ones that you see on, in Walmart. Just take time out to look because you never know. You might have ran into that person or saw something, remember something when you see a picture. Don't just scroll by it or walk past it because it's not you. Take some time out and look at the ones that's missing. Our children are going missing and it's not enough being done about it. We all can play a part. Even if we share, you just played play a part in possibly bringing that child home. All righty. All right. Well, I can't thank the two of you enough. Um, Carol, thank you so much for all the work you do with Nick Mick and to everybody at your organization. Donna, you just keep praying and keeping that faith and the hope. And, um, you know, it's about the needle in the haystack. And so I just want to thank you both for being here today. Bye, Carol. It was great to see you, Donna. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Absolutely. So I'm just, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Um, Upload your DNA to these family genealogy sites, such as Family Tree and GEDmatch. Help bring Donna more hope and help bring Raymond home. And you can find more podcasts on InsideCrimeFiles.com. So thank you both very much. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com. Thanks for listening to Inside the Crime Files. Be sure to follow and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. To read the blog associated with this episode, visit OlasMedia.com. This episode was produced in studios located in San Diego, California. Lena Alvarez is co-producer. Serving as executive producer and co-founder is J.C. Polk and Chad Peace is president and co-founder. Olas Media is an IVC media company. Olas Media.